Now, okay. remember I told you Shelly got an accident in that car? Mm -hmm. This was where she was turning left. Oh, wow. This is right here. And she was turning left, and the lady was coming this way and hit her. Yeah, and it rolled her over in that convertible. Oh, it was a convertible. That's Shane Duvall, Shelly Duvall's younger brother. It's a sunny Thursday afternoon in Houston, Texas, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat of his Jeep Wrangler, looking out the window at a small intersection a few miles from the I-10 freeway. He's explaining how, when she was 17, his sister Shelly got into a car accident that flipped over her Cadillac convertible and almost impaled her with a stake. It was just two passengers, black, with a red interior convertible, you know, and uh, wire wheels and everything. It was really neat, and, but Shelly was driving that, and she was making a left turn on some street, and some, and I don't know, some uh, a lady in a big old Cadillac hit her, and it rolled her car over and almost killed her. She was, uh, it, the metal bar from the roof went down, and it, and it was actually sticking in her back. But that was the closest one that I've ever that I can. How I ended up in Shane's car is a long story, one that, in quite a roundabout way, begins on July 7, 1949, 250 miles away in Fort Worth, with the birth of Shelley Alexis Duval to Robert Duval, not that one, and Bobby Ruth Crawford. Welcome to episode one of Texas Twiggy, a podcast about Shelley Duvall. I'm Emma Lehman, a longtime Shelley admirer and the producer and narrator of this podcast. I want to begin Texas Twiggy with a story. The story of how I found Shelley, or rather, how Shelley found me. I was in my freshman year of college at UCLA when I took a Film 101 class whose midterm was a five-page paper about our favorite film. Now, my favorite film at the time was Beverly Hills Cop, the 1984 comedy with Eddie Murphy. Is this your car? Oh no, in Beverly Hills we just take whichever car's closest. I figured I was going to need something a little more filmic, more pretentious, if I wanted to write five pages about it. So I found a two-hour film called Three Women on Amazon Prime, which drew me to it because it looked, well, filmic and pretentious. Surely, I figured, I can write five pages about this one. I have a new roommate. Of all people, it's Pinky, the new girl at work. I wrote 12. But it's better than waiting around for some fat nurse to answer the notice. The film absolutely captivated me. Its aesthetics, its symbolism, its colors, its writing. I watched it three more times that year. And every time I began to write about three women, I would fall down a rabbit hole about one of its actresses, Shelley Duvall. This tall, thin brunette with a captivating smile and big brown eyes had an air of both polished sophistication and an unblemished naivete that shone through in her character, Millie Lamoureux, in a manner so genuine I was sure she possessed it in real life. I recognized her from The Shining, probably her most famous role, but that was it. So I looked her up. I began to amass a file in my notes app with random facts about Shelley. It became a sort of pet project, collecting tidbits. 
I didn't know what I planned on doing with it or why I had it in the first place, but every time I found some new, interesting morsel about Shelley, I would add it to my notes. Own 70 birds. Dated Ringo Starr. Producer. Nothing after 2002. Famous scene in The Shining took 150 takes. Dr. Phil. The file became longer and longer as I picked up Shelley tidbits. The more I learned, the more surprised I became at the sheer amount of legwork I had to do to get to it. Here's what I mean. In addition to more than a dozen film roles, Shelley, I found out, had revolutionized the genre of television, putting the Showtime channel on the map with several of her own productions. She'd worked with a heaping handful of superstars, including but not limited to Sissy Spacek, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, Terry Garr, Paul Simon. Awards upon awards she'd won, not only for acting but for producing and programming. There's even a Peabody in there. But most people know her as that chick from The Shining, if they know of her at all, and any information beyond that was quite difficult to get to. When I looked, I couldn't find a documentary or even a formidable Wikipedia page. I mean, there is one, of course, but it's missing a lot. Despite being one of the most prolific figures in 1970s and 80s Hollywood, Shelley seemed to be a ghost. Not only in terms of recognition, either. Her last film credit was almost 20 years ago, but it didn't seem like she'd simply retired. No, after a small role in the 2002 drama Mana from Heaven, Shelley disappeared. After 2002, not even a production credit is listed on that sparse Wikipedia page. After decades producing, acting, modeling, even recording two musical albums, Shelley vanished. Well, not quite. Worse, actually, there was one troubling touchstone. In 2016, the talk show Dr. Phil featured Shelley, exploiting what seemed to be a pretty disturbed woman and throwing the sense-reclusive star back into the limelight in a cruel, exploitative episode whose previews received so much backlash that the full episode never aired. Then she really vanished. Eventually, I sort of forgot about Shelley. I turned in the papers I'd written, buried the notes file, and my three-women rental expired. Every once in a while, I'd be reminded of her. It's hard not to be, after all, she had a hand in so many elements of pop culture that endure to this day. Maybe it would be at Halloween, watching The Shining, or maybe I'd be watching something on Showtime or HBO, and remember why those channels are what they are today. Maybe I'd see Popeye or something else with Robin Williams and remember their friendship. But it wasn't until 2020, when Shelley's mother was the 13th person in Houston to die of COVID-19, that she was back in the local news. I'd set a Google alert long ago and came across an article in a local paper, followed by an obituary. Oh my god, I thought. Shelley Duvall. The enigmatic, reclusive, prolific, multi-talented producer, actor, and singer whose impact is felt but not honored, whose disappearance has been exploited but never explained, and whose piercing gaze came rushing back to the forefront of my mind. Texas Twiggy, I hope, will do a few things. First, and most importantly, I want Shelley's rich catalog of accomplishments to have an appropriate home. Seems that every person with an impact even half the size of Shelley's has a documentary or a memoir, or at least an accurate Wikipedia page. Shelley doesn't. 
So Texas Twiggy will aim to be an exhaustive Shelley Duvall tribute. But of course, there is also a mystery. What happened? Why, in the mid-1990s, did Shelley's many production companies suddenly go under? Why did she lose the rights to her shows? Why did she vanish from Hollywood? Where is she now? I want to get a few things out of the way before we embark upon this journey together. First and most importantly, I am not Dr. Phil. I am not the National Enquirer. I am a journalist and a reporter and a huge fan of Shelley, but I am a human first. And so is she. I love and value almost nothing more than going the distance for the story, diving deep and asking the hard questions and doing the delving that needs to be done. But I say almost because there is something I value more, and that's the privacy and humanity of everyone, even and especially celebrities whose interaction with the media have not historically been positive. At the risk of ruining the suspense, in this podcast I do not, and I refuse to, show up at anyone's private residence unannounced with no appointment and a backpack of recording equipment. Shelley is a person. A person whose encounters with the media, both before and after her disappearance and reclusion, have been unkind. I do not want to contribute to that. I want Texas Twiggy to be something that Shelley herself could listen to, if she wanted. And with that in mind, I ask one thing. Please, please, please do not try to find Shelley's house or show up at her door. I don't want this podcast to be yet another media interaction that demoralizes, dehumanizes, or in any way hurts Shelley. Texas Twiggy is a tribute before it is an investigation, and I take that distinction seriously. That said, I am excited to take you on this journey through Shelley's past and present. It's a journey that will take me far, places I never thought I'd go, like Shane Duvall's Jeep Wrangler, a little inn in Texas Hill Country, and one that will show me things close, sometimes startlingly so, that I didn't even know were there. Here's where we begin. I'm from Houston, but I lived in Los Angeles for three and a half years, and then now I live in New York. And uh, my grandfather was French, <laughs> but I've never met him. This is a clip from a 1977 interview in Cannes, France, where Shelley had just won an award for Best Actress for her role in Three Women. She's sitting with her knees apart and a crystal ashtray between her thighs, in a loose-fitting striped blue sweatshirt, white slacks, and white tennis shoes. She seems casual in her element. By this time, Shelley's been in seven films, she's hosted SNL, been on more than a handful of talk shows, and while I wouldn't call her a household name, she was definitely not unknown. But this was before the film titles that most people know her for, The Shining, Popeye, Fairytale Theater. It was also her first award. When she talks about finding out that she'd won, her face lights up, and she still seems shocked. Shelley did not set out to be an actor. Were you guys, were you well off growing up, or? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, my dad was an attorney. My mom started working so that we could have extra money, and, and my mom did real well in real estate. And uh, so as we got a little older, yeah, my, you could say our family had money. But my dad, when Shelly was born, my dad worked for an insurance company. He was a, 
you know, and, and getting his, finishing his law degree and everything. And uh, anyway, and he worked for an insurance company for years. And yes, he traveled. And as a matter of fact, they had moved to Minnesota of all places for uh, for several years. You know, while Shelly was growing up, and my mom hated it. She said it was so cold because my mom was from uh, Fort Worth, and then uh, my dad was from Palestine, Texas. Oh, I've never heard. Of Her mother was in real estate. Her father, an insurance agent. Her family moved around a lot before Shelley's brothers were born. They lived in hotels for so long, in fact, that when they moved into their first house in the Houston suburbs, Shelley asked her mother where the elevator was. When I ask Shane about the time Shelley spent traveling with her parents, he says he doesn't remember much of it. It was, after all, before he was born. By the time Shelley had brothers, the family had settled down in the suburbs of Houston in a four-bedroom, five-bath, right off of what was, at the time, a small freeway. What Shane does remember is Shelley's maternal nature as the oldest sister to her three brothers. She was good. She took care of me. I had some issues when I was a kid, and and she she was always babysitting and uh, feeding us, you know, making sure we ate and all that while because my mom worked. And my dad worked, and so Shelly Shelly was always there for us. We pull up to the first house on our tour, where Shane spent his early childhood, and where, after she moved out, Shelly would visit on trips from California. Yeah, this is it here. This is our house where we lived. And does it did it look like that when you? Yeah, that was it right there. It's a beautiful house, sprawling across a well manicured lawn with pillars flanking a broad front porch. Two big trees here. They took, took down the trees. But it's a big pie-shaped lot. You know, when Shelly was still living out in California, she'd come stay there. Mm-hmm. So with my mom. And you lived there how long? Uh, we had that house. How many years? Oh, I don't know. 10, 15. There's a topiary-style bush in the front yard, a lawn startlingly large to me, although I'm used to L.A. lawns, which are either plants on apartment balconies or three-foot circles of landscaping rocks. Uh, all these trees were little trees when I was growing up. Uh, and this was the house. We used to climb that tree in the front yard. This was the house we grew up in. I mean, for that Shelley lived in. And, we, you know, we all lived in that little house until I was about 17, 16. Oh, probably 14, excuse me. This was a street we all lived on and played. I can tell you every house, every person was with all these, lived in all these houses. And then this was the end of our, the street. It stopped right, right here at this trash can. Oh, and everything here was woods. Everything past here was nothing but woods. Her younger brother Shane and I met in Houston, at a cafe a couple miles from where Shelley's brothers were born. We'll get to the story of how I managed that in a bit, but for now, let me take you on our little ride along through the neighborhoods where Shelley came of age. There are three houses where the Duvals grew up, all within five minutes of each other if you're driving at a comfortable clip and don't mind hopping on the 10 for a couple miles. These two houses were built where our one house used to be. Oh, so your one house was real big. Yeah, and, wow. and it was right here across two lots. 
They're all quite comfortable, though one is more like an estate than a house. They since knocked it down, actually, and built two formidable houses on the property. That was, that's like an estate. Yeah, it was, it was, it was big. <laughs> it was a big house. In true Texas fashion, they're single-floor homes, much wider than they are tall, and the first thing that comes into my city girl mind is, what a poor use of vertical space. Shane explains that Shelley got her own room, being the only sister. He reminds me, Shelley's the oldest, so it's hard for him to tell stories about her. Nevertheless, he seems not to have any problem doing just that. Shelley was a vibrant and unique teenager, it seems, and plenty of anecdotes pepper our lunch and drive. She was an avid Scrabble player, a lover of both words and numbers, and could run facts off the top of her head like an encyclopedia. She loved birds, hated green beans, loved books. This is a recurring theme, actually, how much Shelley adored books and reading, especially fairy tales. Uh, yeah, she loves books. She takes pride in her books. She'd collect original fairy tales with the painted plates and leather binding as a teenager. Had a whole bookshelf full of them, in fact, from the Brothers Grimm to Hans Christian Andersen. This lifelong passion would later give rise to the Showtime channel, but I digress. Point is, Shelley was really smart. And not just that, but she was a cool kid. The famous eyelashes from her first film, Brewster McCloud? That was just a look Shelley rocked on the regular, and the director liked it so much that he just let her keep them. The loud and eclectic outfits that kept her in the tabloids through the 80s and 90s were not just a product of fame, but her taste from early on. In high school, just as in Hollywood, Shelley was gorgeous. Her nickname, in fact, was after a famed model at the time, Twiggy. Shelley was the Texas Twiggy. To hear Shane tell it... She liked to be different, you know? I mean, she didn't want to be the... Uh, you know, she, she didn't want to be like most of the sorority-type girls, you know, that, that stuff. Kind of went her own way in, in senior high and all that. I mean, the pictures of her and stuff were funny, but when she graduated, she started getting her own personality, you know, away from, you know, listening to what my parents wanted, you know, and everything. So she'd butt with heads with them on her dress and all that. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, 60s, you know, and all that. And, even my hair was about down to here then, and uh, uh, Shelly was doing weird things with her hair and uh, eyelashes. And, and that's the way she dressed before. I mean, she didn't do it. In her junior year yearbook portrait, Shelly looks an awful lot like Sharon Tate, with winged eyeliner and blonde bangs and straight, perfectly white teeth. She's always been arrestingly beautiful. She had the boys falling all over themselves, of course, and in high school, just as in the rest of her life, she had a type. And, uh, you know, her boyfriend had hair down to probably the middle of his back, oh, wow. you know, in, in the 60s. And, and uh, so, <laughs> my, you know, my parents kind of had a problem with that, you know. Shelley went for artists, naturally. Her first husband, in fact, was a painter. She hung out with the artist types, too had a pretty impeccable music taste. Later on, as she rose to fame, Shane remembers that she would get him good concert tickets. You know, she used to get me good tickets, you know, and everything all the time. I asked what kind of music Shelley listened to. I mean, she liked all the good stuff, man. I mean, it was, it was good. Everything, I mean, uh, 
T-Rex, you know, Transverse Rex, uh, the Stones, you know, Eric Burden and the Animals. There's all kinds. I mean, we listen to everything. Taste. I grew up listening to all of that, through, which I got through Shelly. You know, I mean, uh, I acquired all my likes and music through her, you know, and I mean, she liked all the good stuff, man. I mean, it was good music and, the, you know, Led Zeppelin, you name it. I mean, we saw them all. It was the big thing to do. Janis Joplin, all that, you know. Uh, I've, I've seen them all. I mean, I went and saw all those concerts when I was growing up. You know, I was real young, but my, uh, you know, Shelly would be going, you know. So it was always like, well, okay, yeah, your sister's going, so I guess it's okay if you're going, or your older brother's going. You know, if my older brother went, I had, I got, you know, well, you can take your little brother, you know. <laughs> so, As he reminisced on their 1960s concert-going days, I could just picture it. Tall, lanky Shelley swaying to a Rolling Stones song with some inventive outfit. I tend to picture her in this scenario as wearing the little bra top and shorts with knee-high wedge boots and a skinny scarf from her role in the film Nashville, with little Shane and Stuart in tow. I'll be there in a minute, okay? I'm talking to someone right now. When we drive by the old high school, also enormous, I guess everything really is bigger in Texas, hordes of teenagers flow out of every entrance. As the kids flood across the street, there's got to be at least a hundred of them right on this street corner. Shane turns down a street in the opposite direction and rounds a corner towards a low, wide building behind an enormous parking lot. This is the Mighty Burger, he says gesturing at this incredibly 70s building that has lights on but is completely empty. He explains that all the kids used to come here after school, where they'd hang out and order milkshakes and cheeseburgers. Mighty Burger, Wyatt's Cafeteria, and Trader Vic's, he says, were the spots to be. Every day at Wyatt's Cafeteria, our chef serves a different complete meal for only $2.99. A complete meal he says the Mighty Burger, the only one of those three left standing, hasn't changed since the 70s, and I believe him. The sign, Mighty Burger, Mighty Good, is backlit by a yellowing glow, the Lone Star flag on the white brick having long since worn away. Sure does not look like any of the swarms of kids hung out here anymore. Soon enough, we've done a loop, and we hit traffic. As we sit at the light, I ask Shane about his mother. If you remember, Bobby Ruth had passed of COVID in February the previous year, one of the first fatal cases in Houston. From what he'd told me about the upcoming holidays, Bobby Ruth had been the glue holding the Duvalls together after the kids grew up and dispersed. And now that my mom, my mom just passed away, you know, from COVID. And uh, mom was kind of the link to keeping everybody <laughs> in food. Right. <laughs> so. Bobby and food. I ask what his favorite home-cooked meal is. What was your favorite uh, dish that your mom made growing up? Chicken and dumplings. Chicken and dumplings. I have yet to have good chicken and dumplings. Oh, man, she made the best. I was just asking Stuart about that yesterday. I was asking him if he had her recipe. And I said, you know, I, I wish now I had watched her make it more often, but it, it took so long she'd roll out her own dough oh, wow. she'd make from scratch with flour and everything but dough 
and roll them out and it just took a long time and so I always lost interest watching her make it, you know. <laughs> but I bet you didn't lose interest in the product when oh, she was man, done. Oh, so good. Oh, she'd make a pot for me and a pot for Stuart. Chicken and dumplings. She'd make a pot for Shane, a pot for Stuart, and a pot for Shelly that she'd drive all the way to her once she'd moved away from home. Best thing he's ever eaten, Shane assures me. I make a mental note to try, at the very least, Cracker Barrel's chicken and dumplings on the drive back to my hotel. Hi there, it's me, Emma. I hope you're enjoying Texas Twiggy so far. If you are, consider supporting the show on Patreon, where patrons get special bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and a neat little sticker. This episode's bonus content includes photos from Shelley's adolescence and an episode where I make Bobby Ruth's famous chicken and dumplings. Tears start as low as $3 a month and help keep the podcast free and its research thorough. And now, back to the show. As we pulled back into the cafe parking lot, my bright yellow Honda sitting like a tiny taxi cab amid a row of jacked-up F-150s and a 16-wheeler. Happy to see them. Will do. Yes, indeed. Thank you again. I had a great time, and I will... Shane promises to send over some of the photos he'd shown me from his long hair days. He reminds me not to take Westheimer, even though Google is telling me to, advice that I ignore and then regret ignoring, and apologizes for keeping me. I climb down out of his truck, and, as I rev up my own puny engine, I'm steeped in intimate knowledge of Shelley's upbringing. It's a strange feeling. I started out having never done anything more than a Google search on this woman, and ended up in her brother's car, in front of her childhood home. On my way back, I see a dead deer splayed out on the side of the road, and I'm reminded of how Shelley dropped out of junior college after having to witness a monkey vivisection. The light turns red, and stopped not eight feet away from the carcass, I gotta say. I get it. The most striking thing, I think, are the similarities between Shelley and myself. The yellow car, the affinity for Scrabble and word games, the crazy outfits, and unique eclectic style. Hell, we have exactly the same amount of acting experience, too. None. And that's the story for episode two. Next time on Texas Twiggy. Well, it all started with art, I guess. And uh... In every telling, Shelley, her brothers, and her parents were very skeptical. Invariably, someone thinks it's going to be porn. The idea for three women actually came to Altman in a dream. Stuart remembers the incident pretty vividly. I didn't get to ride in his truck, but Stu and I met over Zoom to talk about Shelley. So I found some possible addresses. I'm sure you get plenty of people reaching out to you, and throughout my research, I'm somewhere maybe... It feels only right that as part of a quest to create something... And sent an identical letter to all of them, hoping that at best I'd get a reply, and at worst some of them would bounce as undeliverable. And then it's just a matter of process of elimination. And then I found her address, and then... Um, well, I didn't really have an end then. Maybe, if Shelley wrote back, I could call her. Or email her. Maybe I could even meet her. 
Texas Twiggy is reported, narrated, and produced by me, Emma Lehman. Our music is created and mixed by Olivia Springberg. Our research consultant is Sarah Lukowski. Special thanks to Avery Erskine for transcribing interviews, giving notes on endless drafts, and proofreading scripts. Thank you to Shane Duval for the wonderful tour, the chicken sandwich, and the photos. Thank you to That Cafe in Houston for letting us sit there long after you'd closed. Join me next week, and don't forget to rate and review the show on your podcast player. <laughs>